Uh, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them to the book of Jonah. Book of Jonah. Some of you thought I was going to say the book of John, but you heard me right. Book of Jonah, going back to the Old Testament. We've been in the gospel of John for quite some time now, and after some prayer and some reflection, I thought this would be a, a good time for us to go ahead and take a pause from that series and, uh, and turn our attention back to the Old Testament, because at Harbin's Church, we believe that the Bible contains the full counsel of God and is always to our detriment if we focus exclusively on one section of Scripture. We want to hear and learn the totality of God's message to us, and there is a message in the book of Jonah for us. Now, if I were to take a poll asking people what they thought the book of Jonah was all about, and just, you know, just go out into the streets and start asking people, for those who actually heard of the book, uh, the majority would probably mention what? What would they mention about Jonah? Fish, whale, sea monster, whatever. They, 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 would, think something like, they would think something like that. Uh, that's the first thing that, that, that comes to everybody's mind when you mention Jonah, the great fish. And that's what it's about, right? It's about a fish. It's the the first whale tale long before Moby Dick. But actually, that's not what Jonah is about. Actually, the fish gets very little airtime in this book. Not much of a focus at all. Other people would say that the book is, well, it's about Jonah, uh, this prophet who runs from God. And yes, indeed, that's a major emphasis of the story. And we're going to talk a lot about this person, Jonah, over the next few weeks. But ultimately, the book of Jonah, of course, is not about a fish or about a runaway prophet. Ultimately, the book of Jonah is about God. That's what the whole Bible is about. And for Jonah, very specifically, the book is about the grace of God, a grace that is mind-blowing, a grace that is shocking, a grace that seems even scandalous. And my prayer is that Our journey through Jonah will encourage you as you learn about God's grace, and that Jonah, this book, is going to equip you to become a person of grace, and that Jonah will ultimately help you to better see and savor and embrace the source of all grace, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, let's begin our journey right now. Please stand with me one more time, out of honor and reverence for the reading and the hearing of the words of our God. This is not fable. It is not fantasy or fiction. It is history, and more importantly, it is the Word of God. Jonah chapter 1, starting verse 1, and we'll just read on down through verse 3. God's Word says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading and the hearing of your holy and inspired word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through your word to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So just three verses that we are focusing on this morning, and to help us reflect on these three verses today, I have three really simple points uh, to kind of hang our hats on uh, in this message. And really the first thing that I want us to to think about is, is how God gives Jonah a great commission. God gives Jonah a great commission. Look at verse 1 again. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, that language, the word of the Lord came, that should sound familiar to you if, you, if you're familiar with the Old Testament. That's meant to, that language is meant to set apart in our minds this, this person to whom uh, the word of God is coming to set him apart as a prophet, one who receives special direct revelation from God. And this is not the first time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Uh, this is not the first time where we see his uh, prophetic credentials emphasized. Keep your finger in chapter 1 and turn back with me a little further to the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings, where we actually meet Jonah for the very first time. 2 Kings chapter 14. It's the 8th century B.C., and Israel has been in rebellion against God, as they often were. And they had sunk into idolatry and immorality And all of this is happening under the watch of a very evil king, Jeroboam II. And the overall trajectory of Israel has been spiraling downwards for generations. And in judgment, God has allowed their enemies to oppress them, and so Israel now begins to lose some of their territory. Israel is shrinking. And in the middle of this, God raises up a prophet. He raises up Jonah, a prophet from Gath-Hefer in northern Israel, in the region we know as Galilee. And Jonah has had the baton, the baton of prophetic ministry handed to him from those who had come before, like Elisha and Elijah. And during this time of rebellion in Israel, God gives Jonah a surprising ministry. In verse 24, it says that the king did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who is from Gath-Hefer. Now, isn't that surprising? The message that Jonah brought from God to these rebellious people was a positive message a message of prosperity. Your borders will be restored, Israel. And why? Because Israel is repenting of his wickedness? No. Israel's not repenting at all. God's kindness here is not a reward of repentance. Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. And the words that Jonah proclaims becomes true, and the people enjoy God's blessings. The, the, the borders, the boundaries of Israel begin to expand again. And you can imagine how popular Jonah must have been in Israel. <clears throat> Jonah had a great gig compared to Elijah. Remember Elijah, who was <clears throat> hated and he was persecuted, and whom the king called a troubler of Israel because he called out the sins of the people and proclaimed God's judgment? <clears throat> But Jonah is not a trouble of Israel. He's an encourager of Israel. His assignments thus far have been much better than his contemporaries Amos and Hosea. 
Amos was calling Israel to repentance, and Hosea was calling Israel a harlot. You can bet they were not popular in Israel with that kind of message. But when we get to the book of Jonah, we again find a word from God coming to Jonah. And I can imagine as Jonah is anticipating what this word, what this message will be, he, he, maybe he's thinking, perhaps God might, might send me another word of encouragement to give to Israel. Or maybe God would this time give a word of warning and chastisement to Israel, warning them about judgment for their sins. That, that would not have been surprising in light of the ministries of his fellow prophets. But the word that Jonah receives, the commissioning he receives, is neither of those things. The word that Jonah receives is shocking, even horrifying. Verse 2, rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now, this commission is shocking for multiple reasons. First of all, in the past, when God raised up His prophets to speak God's Word, it was always to Israel, always to the Jewish people, always to God's special chosen race. Never before in the time of the prophets had God raised up someone to actually go to a foreign land and preach God's Word directly to them. This is unprecedented. But this Word, this commission is also shocking because God is is sending Him to not just any old foreign place, but to Nineveh. God calls it that great city, and indeed it was. It was large. It was teeming with people. It was a three-day journey from one side of the city to the other. The walls of Nineveh were so thick that three chariots could ride side by side across it. It was very uh, advanced culturally. It was great in many ways, but it was also great in evil. Indeed, when God in His Word to Jonah refers to Nineveh as that great city, it brings to mind Genesis chapter 10, which uses the exact same phrase to describe Nineveh. Genesis 10 records, records events centuries before the time of Noah, including the founding of Nineveh, where we see from the very earliest moments in the Bible, Nineveh is associated with evil and defiance towards God. Genesis chapter 10 verse 11 tells us that the city was founded by Nimrod, the violent warrior tyrant whose very name means rebel and whose kingdom also encompassed Babel and is linked with the sinful defiance towards God in the building of the Tower of Babel. And the pagan idol worship at the Tower of Babel continued, and in the time of Jonah, Nineveh's chief god was Dagon a half-human, half-fish God. And so, when God in Jonah chapter 1 calls Nineveh that great city, seems that God wants us to recall Genesis 10 and wants to link the Nineveh and Jonah's day with the rebellious defiance of their forefathers centuries before following in the footsteps of Nimrod. Nothing's changed in Nineveh, and if anything, things have gotten worse. Because Nineveh becomes the chief city of the Assyrians, and Assyria is the major superpower in Jonah's day, and and it's the most feared nation in the world. 
known for their extreme evil and their barbaric cruelty. They were brutal. They were bloodthirsty. They would pillage and rape and torture. They would burn enemies alive. They would skin alive men and women and children. Wherever they would raid, whenever they raid a village, they'd leave behind a pyramid of the skulls of their victims, a sick calling card. They would, they would take prisoners out into the desert and after they have skinned them and bury them neck deep in the sand and they put a, put a thong through their tongues and just leave them there to die as the blazing sun was beating down on their heads. It was said sometimes people would go, go mad before they actually died. Elsewhere, the Bible gives a powerful denouncement and description of the violence of Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3. In Nahum chapter 3, it says, "'Woe to the bloody city!' all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey, the crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. You get the picture? These people were about as twisted and depraved as you can imagine. These were the the Nazis of the ancient world. And from the opening verses uh, of the book of Jonah, we are confronted with a sick and twisted and perverted evil. And to make things worse, they were growing in power. And to make things worse, they were flexing their muscles more and more in the direction of Israel. In, of Jonah's region, and they, they've already begun to conduct some raids and some campaigns in that region for quite some time. And so, is, uh, so Assyria was a clear and present danger to the national security of Israel. And Assyria was hated and despised by your average run-of-the-mill patriotic Israeli like Jonah. You want me to go there, God? And do what, God? You, you do know how they bury people in the sand that they don't like, God. You do know how sick and twisted these people are. You know how much of a threat they are to your people, Israel, don't you, God? Putting this in modern terms, imagine if you as a Christian received a message from God telling you to leave Georgia and go to some place in the Middle East that's overrun by Islamic State terrorists, to people who are cutting people's heads off with machetes, to people who are plotting at this very minute to blow up American airliners and shopping malls and people, and God tells you to go and preach to them. How outrageous would that be? Now, if that were you and me, I I think the first thing that would be going through our minds is, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. But friends, death is not Jonah's primary concern in all of this. 
And that leads to my second point. God gives Jonah a great commission, which leads to a great collision. Verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now why? Why is Jonah running? Is it a lack of clarity in God's Word? Assuredly not. God is very clear, very plain here. Arise, go to Nineveh, preach. That's pretty clear. The problem is not a lack of clarity. The problem is that Jonah understands all too clearly what the Word says, and he despises it. Jonah is running away from that Word like a terrified man, and what he fears the most is not being buried in the sand by the Assyrians. There is something he is more afraid of than that. Nineveh is wicked. Jonah knows that. God judges the wicked. Jonah knows that. But Jonah, though he may come across as a bit dense in this story, he's not a complete fool. If God is intent on judging Nineveh in this moment, if he's he's intent on doing that, then what's the point in Jonah being sent to Nineveh? What's the point of telling them about their sins and telling them about the coming judgment? Why not just wipe them out now without warning like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah back in the book of Genesis where, where their evil came up before the Lord? If you read the, the, the Genesis account, God didn't send Abraham to those wicked cities to preach. He just blasted them into annihilation. If the doomsday clock has struck midnight for Nineveh, then you would think God's message to Jonah would not be go there, but run for cover and stay as far away as possible. Just like those angels were urging Lot and his family to get out of Dodge, get out of Sodom and Gomorrah real fast. But instead, God doesn't say avoid Nineveh lest you too be incinerated. He says go and preach. And Jonah sees the writing on the wall. He puts two and two together. And he, in a moment of clarity, catches a glimpse of what the prophet Jeremiah talks about when he, speaking on behalf of the Lord, says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil... I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. Jonah knows that Nineveh is wicked. Jonah knows that God judges the wicked. But Jonah also knows something else about God, that God gives grace to the wicked when they turn from their wickedness in humility. Jonah knows this. He knows God is gracious, and he does not want these Assyrians to experience the grace of God. He does not want them to be saved. He wants them to be damned. And my point will be proven when we get to chapter chapter 4 as Jonah confesses as much with his own lips. Friends, Jonah was fine with God's grace as long as it was being given to his own people. 
He was fine with God's grace given to a persistently rebellious Israel, but he was not fine with God's grace given to a Nineveh that might humble themselves and turn from their rebellion. Because Jonah hated the Assyrians with every fiber of his being, and he is scandalized by the idea that that these foul, filthy people would be recipients of God's grace. That's outrageous and he wants no part of it. These Assyrians deserve judgment for what they have done. They aren't part of God's people. They're threatening God's people, and this doesn't make any sense. They deserve to be blasted off the face of the earth. They are barbarians. They are horrible people. Why not just save nice and respectable people, God? Well, what are we doing getting mixed up with these kinds of people? They can't have any share in the people of God. That's ridiculous. Friends, Jonah was fine being a prophet. He was fine serving God as a prophet of prosperity in Israel, enjoying success and prestige and being well-received by his kinsmen. That was a great season of ministry for Jonah. But God wants to change Jonah's plans. God wants to change Jonah's course. And we are seeing here that Jonah will receive and obey whatever word God gives him as long as that word lines up with what Jonah wants and what Jonah thinks should happen. And so God says, go. And Jonah says, no. And we find ourselves here staring at a collision, a collision between two wills a clash between God's way and Jonah's way. text says in in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Now, understand, Jonah is in Israel. Nineveh is to the east of Israel. Guess where Tarshish is? It's not rocket science. Most scholars identify Tarshish as the tip of southern Spain, past Gibraltar, a trip that may have taken months, maybe even a year. In Jonah's geographic knowledge, remember, he doesn't know about America, in Jonah's geographic knowledge, that's at the very edge of the world. It's as far to the west as you could possibly go, as far Uh, from Nineveh as you could get. He wants nothing to do with this mission. He does not want to be an instrument of God's grace to the Assyrians. He'd rather them go to hell. But friends, it's not just Nineveh that Jonah is running from. text says, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Jonah is not just rejecting Assyria. He is rejecting God. He is fleeing from His presence. Now, folks, it's not that Jonah is ignorant of God's omnipresence, that God is everywhere at all times. Jonah knows that. That that was his first lesson in prophetic ministry 101 in seminary. He knows that. But that phrase, the presence of the Lord, that, that phrase evokes in my mind the early chapters of Genesis, like, like Genesis 4.16, where wicked Cain was driven from the presence of the Lord in the, in the wake of Cain's sin. 
But while Cain was forced from the presence of the Lord, Jonah puts himself in self-imposed exile. He's renouncing his prophetic office. He's renouncing his ministry. He's renouncing his identity. And he's trying to find a new life and a new identity outside of God's purposes for him. Something that he likes better and something that he is more comfortable with. And at first, things seem to be going the right way for Jonah. Again, text says in verse 3, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Everything seems to be going smoothly. Everything is lining up nicely. And if Jonah is like many modern professing Christians walking in rebellion against God, it's not hard to see Jonah spiritualizing this. If he's like a lot of modern church people today. I mean, think about it. Jonah arrives in Joppa, and lo and behold, there happens to be a ship in port. And it's not just any ship. It's a Tarshish ship, uh, the ancient equivalent of our ocean liners. And oh my, look at this, that ship just happens to have room for another passenger. And it just happens to be leaving right now. Oh, and let me, let me check my wallet. I, I just happen to have enough money to pay my ticket. This is great. And if Jonah is like many Christians today, I could see him saying, my oh my, providence is on my side. Everything is lining up so nice and so, so smooth. You know, maybe, I, maybe, maybe God didn't really want me to go to Nineveh after all. Maybe I misheard that message. God must be in this because everything is falling into place. It's lining up just perfectly and smoothly. There's, there's no resistance here. This is easy. This is incredible. God's opening doors. And you know what? Everything did seem to be lining up nicely for Jonah. Circumstances did indeed seem favorable. And all the while, Jonah is in complete utter rebellion against God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard of the justification of sin and rebellion in this way from so-called Christians. J.D. Greer once said that if you want to run from God, there will always be a ship ready to Tarshish. You have an enemy whose whole role is to ready the ship for your disobedience. If you always allow your eyes to wander, there will almost always be a girl who will return your flirtations. If you want out of your marriage, there will always be a too-good-to-be-true relationship that presents itself. If you tolerate greed in your life, there will always be a great deal on something to buy or a way to cheat or steal to get ahead. People often neglect God's clear word and they judge reality based on circumstances around them. Charles Spurgeon writes that we should learn from Jonah that providence alone is not a sufficient guide for our actions. Precepts, not providences, are to guide believers. There are devil's providences as well as divine providences. And there are tempting providences as well as assisting providences. So learn to judge between the one and the other. 
And friends, you do that through the Word of God. Not by trying to read the tea leaves of your circumstances. Book of Jonah opens up with God setting His gaze and turning our gaze upon a great evil. A great evil has come up before God. A willful evil. A sick, twisted, and perverted evil. A shocking evil. A grotesquely defiant evil. And friends, I'm not talking about the Assyrians. God gives Jonah a great commission, which leads to a great collision, which presents a great challenge to us. God gave a clear word to Jonah. Arise, go to Nineveh, and Jonah said, no. Brothers and sisters, every year on the Day of Atonement, there are Jewish synagogues that read the book of Jonah, the whole thing. And when they are done, the congregation replies by altogether confessing, we are Jonah. Friends, it's very easy to read the book of Jonah and laugh at this man and make fun of this man and feel a sense of smug self-righteousness, thinking, thanking God that we are not as idiotic as that man. And we sit around thinking, well, well, if God talked to me, if God gave me a clear word, a direct revelation from Him, I'd sure listen, I'd sure obey. Friends, we better get the log out of our own eye. God has given you and given me a very clear word right here in this book. It is as clear and as authoritative as anything God said directly to Jonah. We have received this word, and we have gone in the opposite direction because we are Jonah. You don't believe me? You offended by that? Need some examples? Good. I'll offend you more. Let's start with kids. God, sa God says to children, hey, if you're, a, if you're a children in here, if you're a kid, listen up. God says to children, his revelation to you, arise, go, and obey your father and your mother. Honor them and respect them. Because this sermon is for you too. Don't check out. How often have you heard the clear word of God and you said no to God and you went the other way? God says to church members, arise, go, and be kind and tenderhearted to one another, serving and forgiving one another as God has forgiven you. And we say no. That person has offended me. That person has let me down again. I don't want to reconcile. I don't want to make things right. And so I'm done. They aren't serving me like I think they should. So I'm not even going to try anymore. You are Jonah. God gives a, a clear, prophetic, authoritative revelation to you, husbands. And the word of the Lord says to you, husbands, 
arise, go and love your wife as Christ loved the church serving her and laying down your life for her and dying daily to your own preferences. And yet, how many times you have said no to God and have run the other way, running to your hobbies or your careers or to your pornography and lustful fantasies. We are Jonah. God says to wives, arise, go, and respect your husband, and submit to to him as the church submits to Christ, and you have despised that word, and you don't like what it says, and you seek to control and manipulate him with your words, and you fled in the opposite direction. We are Jonah. Brothers and sisters, God says to all of us, rise, go, and make disciples of all nations, and we are repulsed by that word. Go evangelize these people, God? Are you serious? Why why, why not just save the nice and respectable people anyway, God? Why are we getting mixed up with these people? That person is a Muslim. That person's a a meth addict. That person is, is transgender, and they've got all the surgeries and the hormones. I just can't believe it. This is ridiculous. Engage with those people. They look different. They dress different. They talk different. They say bad words. They come from rough backgrounds. They're not safe. They've done all kinds of sinful things. Next thing you know, they'll be here among us. They'll be here in this church. And I like my church, and I like it the way it is, and I don't want all these weird people coming in, and they'll want to hang out with us, and they'll want their kids to play with our kids. It's all too messy. And can I just keep my my nice, quiet life in the suburbs and not get involved? Just let them burn, God. And how many churches are full of how many people who are looking out towards a world, towards a city, towards a neighborhood, full of lost people who do not know God and are under the shadow of God's wrath, and we have unwittingly taken on the spirit of Jonah because we don't like, don't trust, don't love the people around us. And we'd rather stay safe and chart our life according to our preferences and comforts while the world burns and we run away from our great commission. We are Jonah. Your pastor is Jonah. Friends, there are, there are clear words. There are direct revelations from God to you all throughout this book. Words on how you deal with your money. Words on sexual purity. Words regarding love and patience and, and self-control. Words regarding covetousness and greed. Who says that God doesn't speak today? Who says there are no more revelations today? It's all here. And it continues to speak with prophetic power and authority. And yet, how do you and I respond to this word? Please, please hear me. I'm saying you and I. I'm not the, I'm not the, 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 the super ultra holy dude up here looking down on you. I'm Jonah. That's who I am. I need help. I need your prayers. How do we respond to the revelation of God? To respond to anything in this word in this word, in in any other way other other than joyful and immediate obedience, is defiance. Every time you and I sin, every time 
every time you and I sin, it's saying no to God and it is fleeing to Tarshish. More than that, it is idolatry. Because when His will collides with our will, and when we, in that moment of truth, turn away from the truth, and we choose our will, our path, our preference, we have have in that moment declared ourselves to be Lord. Friends, the people of Nineveh may worship Dagon, but I worship Demer Webb. That's my problem. And apart from God's gracious intervention in my life, I will destroy myself. Jonah is so obsessed with other people's wickedness that he cannot see his own. And we do the same thing. How quick Christians are to sit up on lofty chairs, arrogantly and self-righteously looking down on the world, quick to pounce and denounce and savage everyone else, even other Christians, when we, when we spot them doing or saying anything wrong, and we pounce on them like bloodthirsty piranhas, all the while lacking patience and charity and humility. And if you don't believe me, look at the behavior of Christians on social media. The self-righteous, arrogant, angry, outraged culture has infected the American church. And how strange it is that we who are Christians, people who have received so much grace and mercy, how strange it is that sometimes we are the most graceless people around. And don't think about the person sitting next to you. Let's all look in the mirror and let's see the reflection of Jonah staring back at us because we are Jonah in more ways than we may think. I'm closing in. Hang with me. Jonah had a dream. He had certain desires, a certain vision of how he thought life should be. It probably included a nice, comfortable ministry in in Israel. It probably included the expansion and strengthening of Israel's borders. It certainly included safety from Assyria and definitely did not include a hopeful future for the wicked Ninevites. But God comes in and he smashes all the blocks down and totally messes up Jonah's plans and crushes Jonah's dreams. Why? Because God is mean? No. Because God has a better plan, a better way. And the challenge for Jonah is, does he believe God's way is better? Or is he so attached to his desires and his dreams and his preferences that if God doesn't deliver for him what he thinks God should deliver, he is willing to throw God under the bus and walk away. And in the opening verses of this book, the answer is all too clear. His dreams and his desires are more important than God. But even in these opening verses, God is showing Jonah, this rebel, great kindness Because it was only when God's word threatened the desires of Jonah's heart that his idolatrous sin was exposed. God gives Jonah a word. A word, Hebrews 4 tells us, that is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God gives Jonah this word, and it cuts. Big time. And it reveals 
Jonah's thoughts and his heart like never before. And Jonah's own sinfulness would never have been exposed had God not given him that word, had God just allowed Jonah to have Jonah's preferred life. God's not being mean to Jonah. This is grace, friends. This is grace. Because by denying us our dreams and our comforts, by denying us the treasure that we want, it often exposes something. Because often when we don't get what we want, we sin. We get angry. We get bitter. We get hostile to God and to other people. And if not getting what you want leads you to sin, then in that moment you are worshiping something and it is not God. And that, friends, needs to come out of you like an infectious poison and be exposed for what it is so it can be dealt with. And when God does that, when He exposes the ugliness in us by denying us what we want, that's actually the goodness and grace of God coming into your life to release you from the bondage of slavery to self and from slavery to things that will never ultimately satisfy you. He denies you those things so that you will be driven in desperation to the only one who can ultimately meet and satisfy every need that you have, which is God Himself. Friends, that's kindness. That's grace. I wonder if there is something in this book that God is calling you to do or something that He's calling you to not do and you don't like it and you are running away from that and you are resisting that because you know that to go God's way means death to those dreams and those desires that you have. And so this now is a crucial point for you. What will you treasure more? If you go this way in following God, and it means this other thing you wanted, this other thing you were chasing after will be lost, is it worth it? That's the most important question of the morning, the most important question of your life, the most important question every day when you wake up in the morning and are confronted with His clear word. Is it worth it? Is the treasure over here in God and in His way and in His will and in His person, is that treasure better than whatever treasure I'm eyeing over there? And the Bible says, not only is it worth it, it says it's more than worth it. It says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Anything you lose in pursuit of God and His purposes, does not compare to the value of what you gain in God. Jonah isn't buying that. He doesn't believe it. Do you? Now, the backdrop of Jonah's unbelief, as ugly as it is, makes the grace of God shine all the more clear because God could have easily just let Jonah go to Tarshish. God doesn't need Jonah. God can use anybody. God could have said, fine, you're done with me. I'm done with you. You'll never be used again, and you will rot in Tarshish. Good luck with your awesome life. But the Lord doesn't just care about God's mission. He cares about God's man. And the point of this book is not just about the grace of God towards Assyria. 
The mission of Assyria just happens to be the occasion, the backdrop for for God to give some tough but necessary lessons of grace, not just for Jonah, but for every single one of us who would be God's people as we read about the grace of God lovingly and relentlessly pursuing a runaway prophet who is just as needy as fish-worshipping Ninevites. We all need this little book because we are all Jonah. All of us, except one. Centuries after the time of Jonah, God raised up another prophet from northern Israel, from the region of Galilee. And unlike Jonah of Gath-Hefer, Jesus of Nazareth always heard and always obeyed the word of the Father. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, my food and my drink is to do the will of my Father. Unlike Jonah, Jesus was pure and perfect and holy. And if anyone had a right to run away from a twisted and perverted and idolatrous people like us and leave us on our own to face the wrath of God that we deserve, it was Him. But Jesus doesn't run away from us. He runs towards us. He befriends sinners. He shows mercy to thieves. He extends grace to harlots. While Jonah flees from sinners, Jesus pursues them. He pursues them to rescue them. And he doesn't run to Tarshish. He marches towards Golgotha to a cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays to the Father. And the Father wills that Jesus go to that cross. And Jesus feels the horror and the dread of the cross as he anticipates the foul sin of the Assyrians being placed on him as he anticipates the rebellious sin of Jonah being placed on him, as he anticipates your sin and my sin being placed on him, and as he anticipates those sins being judged in him on the cross, as the anger and judgment of God is poured out on him in the place of his people, he feels in that moment a holy turmoil and dread in his soul to the point where as he is praying about this, his capillaries burst and he is sweating drops of blood as he considers the Father's will. And he says, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible, let me not experience this dreadful thing. And in that moment, the question is, Will Jesus run away like Jonah in the face of something far more scandalous than what Jonah was called to do? And surely all the powers of hell are tempting Jesus. Perhaps the devil was whispering in the ear of Jesus, those humans don't deserve to be saved. They are foul and they are filthy and they lie and they cheat and they've rebelled against you. Just let them burn. But Jesus had a clear word from the Lord, rise, go, and die. And Jesus turns to the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. I love your will, Father. I love your glory, Father. These people are evil. They are liars, and they are cheaters, and they are rebels, but I love them. I love the Assyrian people. I love Jonah. I love the people of Harbin's church. And for that love, the next day he went to the cross and paid the price for Jonah's rebellion and for the brutality of barbaric Ninevites and for the shameful sins committed by the members of this very church 
and this very pastor and for all those who would trust and believe in Him so that they might be spared from the wrath and condemnation of God and instead receive eternal life. Because Jesus is not Jonah. Let's pray.